And now, if you are able, uh, please stand as we hear the word of the Lord together. I'm going to be reading Acts chapter 15, verses 22 through 35. Acts 15, 22 through 35. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were with themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we ask this morning that you would bless it as it's preached, as it's heard, uh, that you would give us hearts that are quick to believe the gospel, that you'd give us hearts that are quick uh, to receive correction and reproof and encouragement and grace. Name and pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, uh, we are continuing in our study of the book of Acts, and uh, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 15, uh, verse 22 through 35, which I just read for us. And, and over the past few weeks, uh, we have watched as the church in Antioch has gone through something of a crisis. Uh, a group has come down from Jerusalem. And they've been teaching that before you can become a Christian, uh, you first have to become part of the Jewish community by receiving the sign of circumcision. And the problem with this teaching is that it undermines the gospel that we are only saved uh, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ without adding any prerequisite works of our own. And so the gospel tells us that we are not saved by our own works, but we are saved by the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, uh, both his perfect obedience in his life and in his sacrificial death upon the cross. And so this is, this is the gospel that was preached to the church of Antioch, and, and this is the gospel they had believed. But now that gospel was being challenged. Well, in the first half of Acts 15, we see these false teachers, uh, they move into the Antioch church, and the result is that the hearts and the minds of the Gentile believers are unsettled, they're troubled. And, and initially... Uh, we read that both Paul and Barnabas argue against these false teachers, uh, but when this doesn't bring this crisis to an end, uh, Paul and Barnabas, as well as some others, 
uh, from that church are sent to Jerusalem to seek a definitive answer. And when Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem, they're welcomed. Uh, The work among the Gentiles is celebrated. But even there, a group rises up to challenge Paul and Barnabas on the same issue. And so the question that Dave explained so well last week was this. Are the Gentile believers required to become part of the Jewish community uh, before they can be saved by the Jewish Messiah? That was the question in Antioch. That was the question uh, that followed them to Jerusalem. And so the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem, they gathered together and they considered this issue. And after much debate, um, following an excellent speech by Peter, uh, the gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone for salvation is upheld. And that's where we left off last week, celebrating the gospel of grace. Well, this morning, as we pick this passage back up, you know, what we find is that this Jerusalem council has debated, uh, they have discussed, uh, now they've agreed to uphold the same gospel that was preached and believed in Jerusalem and Samaria and in Antioch. Uh, they're upholding the gospel, but the news needs to be delivered. It has to be delivered to the church in Antioch and to the surrounding churches uh, that have all been troubled by the same false teaching. Uh, the hearts, you know, the hearts of these new Christians have been troubled. Uh, they have been unsettled by these false teachers, um, by the false gospel. And now news of this decision needs to be sent to restore peace to their hearts uh, of those who have, whose faith has been shaken uh, by providing for them an anchor in the gospel of grace. And a few years ago, uh, I went fishing with a, a longtime friend and fellow minister, uh, Matt Shirley. And uh, Matt and his family own a very large dairy farm in Honeyapath, South Carolina. You may have heard of Honeyapath. You may not have heard of Honeyapath. Um, they own this large dairy farm in Honeyapath. As you, as you expect on any good farm, uh, there are several good ponds to fish in. And, and so Matt and I uh, fished there together pretty regularly. Uh, but one time, uh, the boat that we normally use wasn't available. And so Matt convinced me to go fishing out on this pond with him in a paddle boat. Um, and I was pretty skeptical <laughs> about catching fish out of a paddle boat. You know, just all the noise generated. Um, you know, I, just, I was going, Matt, I'm not so sure about this. Uh, but it turned out the noise was the least of our concerns. Uh, y'all, may, y'all probably know, paddle boats don't sit very low in the water. Um, our real problem that we hadn't realized uh, at that point was that we didn't have an anchor. Uh, paddle boats aren't really made for staying put, right? You're, you just kind of paddle and go around and enjoy a lovely afternoon or whatever on the boat. Uh, you don't fish out of them. And so every time we got ourselves in a good spot to fish, you know, the wind would start blowing us around. Uh, the waves would start spinning us. My line would be behind me. Um, when we did manage to catch a fish, it would just pull us, the fish, this tiny fish could pull us anywhere it wanted, right? <laughs> um, and, and to Matt's credit, uh, we did manage to catch fish that day. Uh, but we spent most of our day um, learning the value of having an anchor uh, by not having one. Uh, we didn't have one when we needed it. Uh, you know, and we use anchors, right? We use anchors for boats. We use anchors for our furniture. We use anchors to hang things on drywall. You know, we use all types of anchors, uh, but they, all have, they have the same job. An anchor's job is to hold a movable object fast in place. Uh, it keeps it in place. That's what an anchor does. Uh, Matt and I found out uh, that day that our boat needed an anchor. Well, in Acts 15, this group from Jerusalem had come to Antioch, and they were teaching that the gospel was a two-step process. First, you became Jewish by keeping the ceremonial law, and then you could become a Christian. And so the council in Jerusalem provided an anchor for the faith of these Gentile believers who had found their faith shaken uh, by these false teachers by upholding the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the early church needed this anchor. 
uh, because the problem of false teachers, the problems of false teachings plagued the New Testament church. You know, throughout the New Testament, you know, we hear Paul and others you know, address a variety of false teachings that strike at the heart of the gospel, that strike against the truthfulness of the scriptures. And the church in the New Testament needed this anchor, and so, and so do we. Uh, just like the early church, uh, we live in a time when false teachers and false teachings are everywhere. Uh, from teachers and professors in school uh, classrooms who delight in shaking the faith of the young, uh, to our televisions, to Instagram preachers uh, preaching to us false gospels, uh, to former pastors and former worship leaders and former leaders of the evangelical church uh, who have lost their faith, becoming deconstruction coaches so that they can help others lose their faith too. Uh, you know, most of us here this morning, or most of you here this morning, have probably heard my testimony of having my faith completely derailed uh, during college by a handful of religion professors who, who really just kind of wrecked my confidence in the scriptures. And it took years. It took years as the Lord worked through my friends and through uh, the ministry of RUF and through the ministry of our local church and, and through my, even in, through my time in seminary to, to rebuild uh, my theological foundations that had been so easily shaken. And, and my story is unfortunately a fairly common story. Uh, but now... These challenges to our faith aren't contained to a university classroom. They're, they're all over our culture. Uh, they're on social media. They're on YouTube. They're in the news. There is, there is no shortage of those whose desire to trouble our hearts, uh, to unsettle our minds, uh, both from inside and outside the church. Uh, there's plenty of people who are glad to do that. And, and since we know what it's like to be unsettled, um, to be unsettled by the, the words or even just by the, the presence of false teachers and false teachings opposed to the truths of Scripture, you know, we need to pay close attention to the truths we find in our passage today. So this morning, we're going to walk through this passage together, and then we'll spend just a few minutes looking at four important lessons that we can learn from this passage to help us in our own unsettled seasons. And the first thing that we see in our passage this morning is that, you know, carriers of this letter, of this message, of, of this message of good news, they had to be chosen. I'm going to read verse 22 again for us. It says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. In our world of instant communication, this seems like a strange detail to us. Um, but this is a significant uh, moment for the council. Uh, a crisis had arisen in Antioch uh, when a group arrived from the Jerusalem church and now Judas, Bar uh, also known as Barsabbas, which means son of the Sabbath, um, and Silas, uh, two of the leading men in, in, in the Jerusalem church, are chosen to accompany Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch. And these men were chosen uh, for their gifts, right? We find out later that they are prophets. Uh, but we also, they're chosen because they're well-known in the Jerusalem church. You know, this group that is causing trouble in Antioch, they're going to know these men. Uh, they will have no choice but to believe that this message really is authored by and backed by the apostles and the elders of Jerusalem. And so in verse 22, we see the council uh, choose well-known, reliable men to serve as witnesses, to serve as messengers, and even to encourage the church in Antioch through their gifts. And then in verses 23 through 29, uh, we get to read the contents of this letter. And we'll start by looking at verse 23. Verse 23 says, With the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. And so I love this verse. Um, it, it's really easy for us to, to blow right past this greeting. But we, when you remember the history of the people of Israel, uh, these words are incredible. 
um, and can only be explained by the truth of the gospel. You know, the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem, uh, they make a point to call the Gentile believers in Antioch, uh, to call the Gentile believers in these surrounding cities, they call them brothers. You know, the Gentile men and women in the church in Antioch already belong to the family of God because they have been united to Christ by faith. And so in this simple greeting, we hear echoes of the truths that Paul expounds on in Ephesians 2 when he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You know, Paul's going to talk about this again later, and it's, we see it right here. From the very beginning, this letter is written to affirm the truth of the gospel. Uh, they are already in the family because they have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ who has made them one. And so verse 23 begins by affirming the truth of the gospel. And then in verses 24 through 27, the council makes certain that the church in Antioch is able to recognize uh, that those who have come and those who have unsettled their minds are, are unauthorized teachers uh, teaching an, an unauthorized gospel. So I'm going to read verses 24 through 27 again for us. They say this, Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. At this point in the life of the early church, uh, the very fact that the group had come to them from Jerusalem uh, would have given them a certain level of authority. Uh, the church in Jerusalem was the, the mother church to every other church that existed. And so there was just a natural respect uh, shown to those um, who were from the church. And so in his letter, James makes clear that this group uh, that had caused so much trouble, that had unsettled their hearts, uh, that had done so much damage, he makes sure they understand that they had done this without the Jerusalem church's knowledge or authority. And then, in contrast, James praises Barnabas and Paul as beloved co-laborers in the gospel, uh, who have devoted themselves to the gospel, who have risked their very lives in the name of Jesus. Um, if there were any doubts in Antioch among the Gentiles or among the Jews about who they should listen to in this debate, uh, James has settled those doubts. And he has sent Judas and Silas to further con uh, confirm this to the church. And then, um, after first affirming the gospel in his introduction, and then vouching for the faithfulness of Paul and Barnabas, he lays out the decision of the council in verses 28 through 29. So let me read that for us. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and for what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So James tells them that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to them to lay no great burden upon them, uh, but that they should keep these four requirements. And, and when he says that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit um, and to the council, what he means is that uh, they have clearly seen in both Peter's experience of being led uh, by the Holy Spirit to preach to the Gentiles who believed and then received the Holy Spirit that day, uh, and the reports they had heard from Barnabas and Paul about the, the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, just the incredible work going on among the Gentiles, uh, that this council is really just acknowledging the truth 
um, that God has already revealed by his work through the Holy Spirit. The, the council will not add to the requirements of the gospel. Um, but if the council isn't adding to the requirements of the gospel, then, then what do we make of these four requirements set out for the Gentiles? You know, we're kind of going, okay, this seems like a trick, right? Um, not adding to the gospel, but do this. So what do, what do we make of this? Well, uh, commentators explain that at the heart of all four of these requirements was a concern that these Gentile believers separate themselves from the rampant idolatry of their culture. And all these requirements are tied up in this big picture of idolatry that went on in the Gentile culture. Um, and their continued participation in those practices uh, would drive a wedge between themselves and believers from a Jewish background, but it would also be dangerous for their own souls for them to continue uh, mixing with these things. Uh, one commentator, David Peterson, um, when he speaks of these verses, he says, it was a warning to abstain from acts that would offend Jewish scruples and hinder social interactions between Jewish and Gentile believers. But its deeper significance is the implied challenge to break completely with every pagan association and practice. Or as uh, Daryl Bach says it, uh, the prohibitions are designed not only to prevent offense to the Jews, but also as they are tied to worship to prevent uh, offense to God. Or as this commentator, who I can barely pronounce his name, Eckhard Schnabel, Dave, sound right? Okay. As Eckhard Schnabel says, um, these prohibitions of idolatry and of sexual immorality belong to the fundamental commands of the law of which neither Jewish nor Gentile Christians are free. And so these four requirements are not given as prerequisites uh, for entering the family of God. They're given to maintain the relationships within the family of God and, and to maintain the relationship with God. Uh, this is an issue of continued growth and holiness for these new believers called out of an idolatrous and pagan culture. Uh, they've been declared holy uh, based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. Uh, they have been justified, and now they are instructed to grow in that holiness by following these requirements. Uh, their faith is secured. It is anchored in the work of Jesus Christ, and their faith is confirmed by the presence of the work and the power of the Holy Spirit uh, who empowers them to grow in their sanctification, to pursue this holiness. And this is why James can say that these requirements are no great burden. And we can see in the response of those who received this letter that they agreed, that they agreed. In verse 30 through 35, uh, we see that the consequence of this letter, the result of this letter is joy. I'm going I'm to start by reading verses 30 through 32. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened their brothers with many words. And so what we have here is just kind of a recap, right? The messengers arrive, uh, the letter is read, and the result is rejoicing. The result is encouragement. The gospel they had heard and preached, the gospel they had believed was upheld. And so their minds no longer needed to be unsettled. Their hearts no longer needed to be troubled. The truth of the gospel confirmed was an anchor for their souls. And we see here in these verses that having delivered this message, uh, having um, served as witnesses to confirm all that had happened at the council, Judas and Silas uh, further encourage and strengthen the church by spending a season preaching in Antioch. Uh, they stay. They use their gifts to encourage and build up the church after a di difficult time. And in verses 33 through 35, uh, this crisis that began at the beginning of chapter 15, it draws to a conclusion. So let me read those verses for us. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, 
teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So after a season of encouraging and strengthening the church, the messengers from Jerusalem, they return to Jerusalem, and they're sent off in peace. Uh, when we see this, we realize this conflict has ended, right? They're sent to return home with peace. And while Paul and Barnabas remain, uh, they remain and they teach and they preach and they continue to build up the church in Antioch, uh, after, who had just been through this incredibly difficult season of division and even doubting whether or not they were really saved. And here, as this passage draws to this wonderful conclusion, you know, the gospel is upheld, the people are rejoicing, the people are, are strengthened and encouraged. Uh, we find ourselves left with a, a question that we need to address. Uh, where is verse 34? Uh, where is verse 34? Um, some of your Bibles may include it, uh, but place it in brackets, and you may have wondered why I didn't read it. Uh, some of your Bibles may completely leave it out, as the ESV does, uh, but it marks its place by skipping that number in the verses. Uh, you may have, may have noticed that before in a few other places in the Bible. So uh, let me explain what this means when we encounter something like this. In a world where photocopiers and digital manuscripts um, didn't exist, uh, everything had to be hand-copied. And the Bible was no different. It was hand-copied and preserved by creating multiple copies. Well, as we look um, at the Greek and the Hebrew manuscripts of the Bible, one of the things that we very occasionally run into are places where a scribe uh, made a note to explain a portion of the scripture that he was copying. Uh, if you think, if you're, reading, you know, if you're reading through your Bible and, you're, and you like to make notes, think of writing a note in the margin saying, you know, just going, oh, this makes sense. You know, you kind of jot a little note. Well, what happens is later, accidentally, this is copied into the text as belonging in the Bible. And, and the way that we recognize these notes is by comparing the different manuscripts to one another. Uh, and by comparing the manuscripts of which we have uh, an embarrassment of riches is the term they like to use. Uh, as we compare the manuscripts to one another, we're able to spot kind of when these notes were added into the text. And so our Bibles will indicate that to us. Uh, they'll tell us, they'll either place it in brackets, they will leave the verse out, but you'll notice the, the verse numbers skip over a verse. Um, they alert us in kind of a number of ways. And, and our ability to, to recognize these scribal notes, our ability to correct them, should give us more confidence in our English Bibles, um, not less. Uh, in Acts 15, uh, we're alerted to the presence of one of these uh, scribal notes, uh, likely written to explain how Silas could still be in Antioch in verse 40, when we're told that the group from Jerusalem had departed in verse 33. Um, it's kind of those things where we're going, well, how'd that happen? So, guy, so someone writes, maybe he stayed. You know, that's, that's kind of all it took, right? Maybe he stayed. And someone's like, yeah, maybe he stayed. Um, and they copied it in. And so we, when we compare it, we find out that's not there. Um, they're trying to solve a problem that the text doesn't actually have. Well, um, you can easily look and explain without the scribal note by reading in verse 36. Uh, verse 36 begins with the phrase, and after some days, uh, which can mean a few days, it can mean a few months, it can even mean years um, in, in the New Testament time period. So Silas very easily could have returned at any point during that some days. And so by comparing the collections of manuscripts to one another, uh, it was determined that verse 34 is a scribal note. Um, and we don't have time to, to go more in depth on this this morning, but if you have questions about this, if you have questions about you know, how did we get the text of the Bible, there are some incredible resources out there uh, to help you find answers. Um, Dave and I'll be glad to assist and answer questions or point you in the right direction. Uh, but I did want to explain why I didn't read verse 34 um, as we went along. So as we began to look at this passage this morning, uh, the hearts of these new Christians had been troubled. Uh, they had been unsettled by false teachers. They had been unsettled uh, by a false gospel. 
And now, uh, news of the council's decision had been sent to restore peace. Uh, news had been sent uh, to, to restore peace and just joy to the hearts of those whose faith had been shaken uh, by providing for them an anchor, an anchor in the gospel of grace that tells us that we are not saved by our own works, but that we are saved by the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so this is a wonderful resolution to a significant challenge in the life of the early church. You know, as we walk through the book of Acts, we see challenge after challenge kind of arise, and we're told how, how it's dealt with, what happens. And so we see here, false teachers and false teachings had unsettled their faith, and the council in Jerusalem, in accordance with the scriptures and acknowledging the work of the Holy Spirit, they provided for them an anchor for their souls in Jesus Christ. And before we go today, I, I want to spend just a few minutes uh, looking at four important lessons that we can learn from this passage uh, to help us um, to help us in our own kind of unsettled seasons, our own seasons when our faith is maybe challenged. And the first lesson uh, that we can learn from this passage to, to help us in our own unsettled seasons is this. Uh, when our faith is challenged by doubts or by questions or by a new teaching, don't panic. Uh, that's it. When our faith is challenged uh, by our doubts or by our questions or by a new teaching we've encountered, don't panic. Uh, false teachers and false teachings and and even the questions and doubts that arise in our own hearts, um, these things aren't new. Uh, we see all of this on display as we read the New Testament. And so when our faith feels unsettled, we don't need to panic. Uh, one of the most helpful things that one of my seminary professors uh, told me when I was kind of struggling with questions and with doubts about the Bible, uh, one of the things he told me uh, as I struggled with these things, even, even questions about my faith, was this. Uh, he said, uh, the Bible is an anvil that has broken many hammers. Uh, the Bible is an anvil that has broken many hammers. You know, uh, so many have attempted to finally and to, to fatally prove the Bible to be false. And they've all failed, and yet God's word remains. That's the point that he was making. And so the first lesson um, that we can learn from this passage to help us in our own kind of unsettled seasons in our faith is don't panic. Don't panic. Uh, the second lesson uh, that we can learn from this passage to help us in our own unsettled seasons is this. Uh, when our faith is challenged, go to the scriptures. Uh, when our faith is challenged, go to the scriptures. Uh, when these false teachers arrived in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas challenged them with scripture. Uh, it, and I want to mention this because it can be easy in seasons of doubt and seasons when you're questioning things, it can be easy for us to abandon our time in God's word. And I encourage us, don't. Uh, don't let your doubts, don't let your questions keep you from God's living word that he will use to sustain us in these seasons. Um, I did not sleep a lot last night, and so sometimes my illustrations uh, might be iffy, so iffy in a good way. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so I'm going to try an illustration that may or may not work. Um, so if your friend tried to convince you that your spouse wasn't real, um, would it be easier to continue trusting that your spouse was real if your spouse was at home and you saw them every day or if they were gone on vacation? Right? If they were gone for two weeks on vacation and your friend's like, hey, spouse isn't real, and you're like, you know, like, no, what are you talking about, right? Uh, but if your spouse is right there next to you, it's a lot easier to, to not believe that lie. Uh, when we go through seasons of doubt, seasons of questioning, even seasons of doubting and questioning what's in our Bibles, um, we need to remain in the Bible, continue reading the Bible, continue getting answers in the Bible, continue engaging with God's living word. Um, because it's a whole lot easier. <laughs> to stop believing something if we don't see it, right? If we're not engaged with it. 
And so by, when we have questions, when we have doubts, we continue to engage with God's living word. So that's the second lesson. Uh, the third lesson uh, that we can learn from this passage to help us in our own unsettled seasons um, is this. Uh, when our faith is challenged, go to trusted authorities. Uh, when your faith is challenged, go to trusted authorities. Uh, when Paul and Barnabas couldn't resolve this issue uh, through the study of Scripture, through their use of Scripture and these arguments uh, with these false teachers, they went to the trusted authorities of their time, and we can do the same. Uh, there are very few challenges to the teachings of the Bible uh, that are new. Uh, the church has spent its entire history, from the New Testament until now, answering challenges to the truth of the Bible, to the truth of the gospel. Uh, there is a wealth of information. Uh, there's a wealth of help available to us in church history, in our creeds, in our confessions, in our elders, in our leaders today. Uh, if you have questions, if you have doubts, if your faith has been challenged, go to trusted authorities for help in this season. So that's the third lesson, um, go to trusted authorities. The fourth lesson that we can learn from this passage uh, to help us in our own unsettled seasons is this. Uh, when our faith is challenged, uh, don't pull up anchor in the middle of the storm. Uh, when your faith is challenged, don't pull up anchor in the middle of the storm. You know, in seasons, in seasons when our faith is challenged, it can be tempting uh, to get tired and to just pull up anchor. Uh, to, to give up trying to find answers, uh, to make an emotional decision about our faith while we're under emotional distress. Don't. You know, our hearts need an anchor because they are prone to move, right? Anchors hold, keep things in place that are movable objects. Our hearts are movable objects. If you think of be thou my vision, right? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Um, <laughs> don't pull up anchor. Our hearts need an anchor. Uh, yes, if... <laughs> It very well may t uh, take hard work uh, to find answers to some of your questions. It may be a long season of asking questions and uh, wrestling with doubt. Uh, but the presence of questions, uh, the presence of questions don't mean the absence of answers. Um, in Hebrews 6, uh, verses 18 through 20, we read these words. It says, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might, find, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place be, behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, the promises of God, the promises of the gospel, are an anchor for our souls. Uh, they are a place where we can flee for refuge, uh, they are a sure and steadfast anchor, even in seasons of doubt, uh, because it is impossible for a God to lie. And because our perfect, eternal priest, Jesus Christ, has secured these promises with his life and with his death. And so when the storms come, uh, let us not abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life, who died a sacrificial death to save you. But let us cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ, our sure and steady anchor. Let me pray for us.